So last week we began this series of looking at the book of Daniel, and we're considering how Daniel and his three friends from Judah um, are teaching us of what it looks like to live in a world that is bent against God and bent against us as, as God's children. And so what was interesting about Daniel chapter 1 last week is we discussed the importance of seeing how God is the one who's really sovereign, or another way of saying that, in control of guiding his people in a land or in a world that is hostile to God. And so tonight I want to continue by looking at Daniel chapter 2 and maybe even considering that same theme but also seeing what Daniel chapter 2 contributes to this idea of how to live in a world bent against God and towards us. I'm sorry, Nicole had this like weird... I was trying to open my water bottle. Oh, okay. You get it? Yeah, I get it. Okay. Hydrate. That's important. Daniel diet. <laughs> so, um, Daniel chapter 2 is really long, and so I kind of thought long and hard of how to incorporate the passage, but not sit here and read 50 verses at you. Um, so let's just go ahead and begin and looking at Daniel chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll kind of systematically go through the passage and seeing what it is teaching us. So uh, go ahead and look down at Daniel chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show you the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show me the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show you his interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see, the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupts before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Verse 10, that Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And so... Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. I wonder if you've ever heard this figure of speech that you can't see the forest for the trees. 
and as I was looking that up and trying to find like the original source of this idiom of missing the forest for the trees and the way of saying it, um, it has this idea of have you ever been someone who gets lost in the details of something and you miss the big picture? So for example, I remember when I was in high school in Mexico building a house, I was in charge of putting up the drywall. And for the longest time, I was trying to get this one little screw into this drywall. No matter what I could do, um, it wasn't working. And I was like looking at like the cord, and I, and I was looking at the, the, the screw, and I probably like thought 10 different screws were wrong or something. Like, these are bad screws, and so I was getting new ones. And I was looking at every little detail, but then guess what? The, the screw gun was in reverse and not in forward. And so it's really hard to put a screw through something when it's in reverse. Um, so in, in one sense, too, when I'm just focused on this one screw, I, I take a step back and I, and I look, too, at this whole house that's being built by, by many different people. And I'm just focused on my one little thing. Or say, for example, when you're writing a paper for school or for English class, and you are focused on just one sentence, and you spend so much time working on the one sentence that you kind of miss the whole picture of, of the assignment. Another school reference, if you make one class your focus, like I'm only going to focus on math, and I'm only going to do math homework, and I'm just going to think about getting an A in math class, and you forget the big picture of the fact that you have history and science and what other classes you may be taking. So, I think, in one sense, when, when I talk about this idea of missing the forest of the trees, we all do this in different ways and different degrees. We get lost in the big detail of what is happening. And so, I'll be even honest for a second. When it comes to ministry, when it comes to me being a youth pastor, sometimes I get so focused in on one message, or one week of ministry, or one trip, when really... When I take a step back and I think, a lot of you are here for four years, or two years, or even one year. And so there's this, there's this sense in which we look so closely at, at what is now, and instead of looking at this big picture of, of what if God is building disciples, not in a week's time, but maybe in a longer time, by doing small overlooked things over a long period of time, and not just a week's time, right? So, let's um, even take this idiom, as we would call it, a step further. When we have problems in our life, when we have trials, or hardship, or just plain old bad days, do you ever focus on your own problems so much that we may even at times think that we're the only person to really know what it's like to have a hard season of life. When something bad happens in your day, do we ever focus on that one little thing so much that we think to ourselves that life isn't fair and life is no good and I don't ever get it well in life based off of one small thing that has happened in our day? Let's take it bigger. When we just think about our lives, 
When we think about the course and the journey that we are headed towards in life, are we ever focused on ourselves so much that we forget the big questions of life, such as, why am I even here as a human being? Where am I going in life? What is my big purpose in life? Do you see how sometimes we can be so focused on today and the homework and the expectations I have, and we just go day in and day out, and we forget some of these big things of, what are we here for? What are we supposed to do in life? How do I know that I am, in fact, on the straight and narrow? And so what I like about Daniel chapter 2 is it helps us, I think, Think a little bit past the trees and think about the forest of life. It helps us, as, as we would say, to maybe think of some of the bigger issues instead of just being so self-focused in the today and in the now. So um, really quick, before we jump into the passage, and like I said, there's 49 verses in this chapter, but I believe that it's all one unit, one story. I think it's important for us to remind ourselves of the context. And by the context, I think we need to remind ourselves of who the original audience of the book of Daniel was. Because if we don't, if we just think that the, this Daniel chapter 2 was written directly towards me, here is what the sermon may sound like. Uh, be like Daniel and his friends, pray more, and God will make your life better. Um, in fact, that is a very, very bad way of understanding and, and interpreting the Bible that we would just think that is immediately talking to us. So what is the context? If you remember, this book is written to Jews who are not living in their own land, but by way of force, the Babylonians have come in and they've taken them into their own land, Babylon, and so they're living in exile. Weirdly enough to say, imagine Canada invading Washington, killing most of the people, uh, tearing down Seattle, and taking just a remnant of us to go live in the most foreign place of all places, Canada. Right? Um, poor comparison, but it, it kind of captures the idea. And so what are the questions of these Jews facing in this evil land, the land of Shinar, as we said last week? Questions of whether or not God will restore his people. Questions that they were deeply considering was, how could God sort out all of the injustices that they were experiencing? Questioning whether or not God is still protecting them, or if God is even in control of their day-to-day lives. And so Daniel chapter 2, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's a unique passage. There's a lot of dreams and visions, and that's not a way that we naturally kind of think about life. There's um, as we read a little on, there's something about this statue and clay and all these different weird things that are happening. But what I really think that it is showing us, more than just neurotic kings who give impossible tests, is it is showing us a big picture of how God is in control of our lives. And so by just way of breaking up this, uh, this large chapter, by way of us kind of spending some time tonight looking at Daniel chapter 2, I would like for our time to be considering the three different kingdoms that we are presented with in Daniel chapter 2. And a quick word about that word kingdom. We don't live in a kingdom. Um, I think a lot of little girls wish they did because that's why Disneyland is so popular, because of princes and kings. And so if you think of a kingdom, a kingdom is just a a, um, 
a nation or a country that is ruled by a king. So king, dumb, a, a king rules however big his uh, territory is. And so when we think of kingdom, it's kind of hard for our Western minds to, to, to wrestle with. But by kingdom, we are describing um, nations that are ruled by kings. And so in this chapter, I think there are three specific kingdoms that address us of what does it look like to live in a world in which people are bent against us and bent against God. And so the first kingdom is this, a kingdom threatened. So really quick, the, the verses that we just read, um, if, you, if you kind of look down really quick in verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. So, the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, here's what King Nebuchadnezzar does. He's probably looking at his payroll. You know, I don't know how many of you own a business, but in essence, imagine if you were like the CEO of a company, and you have this amount of dollars coming in, but you have to pay all of your employees. And so if you look, he says... He, he thinks about all of the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans is another word for just saying Babylonians, so the Babylonian wise men. And he's like, man, I pay those guys a lot of money. There are a lot of them dudes who just kind of like come and tell me some random little things here and there, but what good are they really? So he's having a really rough time at this, okay? And so it's very common back then where they felt that, that their gods, deities, would speak to them via dreams. And so he, he raises up this impossible test. So imagine if I came in here and I said, I, I am willing to give you all of the money in my bank, which is not that much. But imagine Donald Trump said that. I'll give you all the money in my bank if you could tell me, one, what I dreamed about, and two, what it means. Like, yeah, bro, I can't read minds, man. Um, I, don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And so in, in one sense, if you think of the typical way that enchanters and magicians and sorcerers worked back then, this is what typically happened. There was this book of, like, prophecies. And in, in this book of prophecies, there was, like, a number of different types of prophecies that were explained. And so what they would do is someone would explain to these sorcerers or magicians what their dream was like, and they would go to this book of prophecy, and they would find the story that most resembles that, and they would use the explanation given in that book to say, well, your dream is like this dream, and the interpretation of this dream in this book means this, so here is your answer. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar, though, says, yeah, 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 I don't care about that. I want you to tell me exactly what I am dreaming. I can read a book, too. And so, in verse 10, if you look down, he says this. They say this, The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. Do you know what his response is? What are you guys even good for? What do I even pay you for? And so what's fascinating is he says, if you can't do this, guess what? I'm going to tear all you apart. And it's pretty like graphic language. I'm going to tear your limbs off and I'm going to 
bulldoze your house down? Right? So here's the punishment. If you don't do this, this is what's going to happen. But if you do it, guess what will happen? You get a lot of riches. You get great honor. I will make sure you get taken care of. My first time ever at this youth group as the youth pastor, it was uh, June three years ago. And at the time, this high school group was going through the Book of Romans. And so I, I get hired, I move to Olympia, Washington, and I come in my first day, and I have nothing to do. I literally like twiddle my thumbs. Um, and then they're like, hey, by the way, we want you to teach next Sunday in our series on the Book of Romans. Great, I love to preach on Romans. What's the passage? Romans 13.1, it's about obeying the government. Time out, bro. So you're you're telling me that the first time I'm going to be preaching in front of this youth group that now I'm apparently the leader of, that I have to preach on obeying the government. Like, man, you're setting me up here for success, aren't you? Like, talk about like a dull topic. Obey the governments where this is the Lord's will for you. And, you know, and, and talking to high schoolers, and I don't even know what I said back then. Something about, like, is it a sin to speed? Um, I still don't know the answer to that question. So I'm not even sure what I said was, like, even right. But one thing that we did talk about is how do we respond to evil dictators or evil governments? When Paul says in Romans 13:1 that as Christians we need to obey the government, what is the challenge of what, if you're living in Nazi Germany? What is the challenge to a Christian if you live in North Korea? Or if you were in Italy under the reign of Mussolini? How do you obey a, a dictator, someone who is opposed to doing what is right? And so when I look at King Nebuchadnezzar here, I think he is a picture of every political leader that uses his power for his own gain. So what does he do? He has this issue. He wants to figure it out. But just like any person in power, do you know what they kind of do? They use their money. They use their power. They use their control to just push people around, to treat people like pawns. You know, I don't know if you ever remember like some like the stories your parents would tell you about the king and the queens and the princesses and the princes, but do you know what made a good king? A good king was the king who cared about his people. And unfortunately, when I think of Nebuchadnezzar here, and we'll read more about Nebuchadnezzar, and by the way, he's not the, the hero by any means. Um, I see a picture of just about every corrupt politician or king that the world ever had. And this is why. Because he feels threatened. And how do we know that? How do we, how do we know he feels threatened? Because he has this dream, and now he's bossing people around. I mean, how loving or kind is it to hold people to an impossible standard and threaten their life and their livelihood simply because you can? So here is what I mean by that. Look down at verses 17 through 23. 
So um, they kind of, Daniel went to, this, uh, to the, the executioner and said, yo, give me more time, man. I'll, I'll figure this out. And so verse 17, then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, so Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. And so Daniel, after this, after he receives this vision from the Lord, he, he gives a song to God, and, and he praises him. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. And what's interesting is, if you remember in chapter 1, where it says God gave Daniel the ability to interpret dreams and visions, this is where it gets flushed out in. So here's the story so far. Here is the plot. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream, and he wants to figure out. He sets up an impossible test. He demands that if they don't give them not just the interpretation to his dream, but tell him his dream, they will all die. And so Daniel asks for time to go and pray. Now, here is where we might be tempted to slow down and say, okay, what's the application? We should, in times of hardship, just go and pray, and God will give us answers to the interpretation of random people's dreams. Is that what it's teaching us? No. So actually, we have to read on a little bit more. Look at verse 24. Therefore, Daniel went back to Arioch, which is the chief executioner, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought Daniel in before the king in haste and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show you the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed. To you, O king, as you lay in bed, come thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mystery made known to you is what to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you know the thoughts of your mind. So Daniel is saying, when you are in bed, these are your thoughts. That you wonder what is going to happen after all of this. Think for a second who Nebuchadnezzar is. He is the top dog of the world. He is the world leader. But has he gotten there by just and normal ways of doing that? No. By barbaric practices of killing and slaughtering hundreds of thousands of people, by horrible, evil ways of treating humans, he has become the powerhouse in the land. And so do you know what we see here? Is we see someone who is desperately insecure so here is the dream finally get to it verse 31 you saw O king and behold a great image this image mighty and of exceeding brightness stood before you and its appearance was frightening the head of this image was of fine gold its chest and arms of silver its middle and thighs of bronze its legs of iron its feet partly of iron and partly of clay 
As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Let me summarize what the, the dream was. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of some statue. And in this statue, it was made of four different types of metals. Gold, silver, bronze, and iron. And in this big uh, statue, something came. It wasn't a hand, but it was a stone that came and knocked the statue down. So it collapsed. And what happened is it gets this imagery that it just brushes away in the wind like it's never happened. Nebuchadnezzar keeps having this dream over and over and over and over again. And here's what's happening in his heart. He is worried about his power. He is worried about the control that he has. Who is, and as a matter of fact, a lot of commentators think that he thinks Nebuchadnezzar is thinking of an assassin is going to come and kill him and take away his power. And so what he does when he feels threatened, what does he do? He barks people around and tells them to do this impossible test for him. And so like I said before, before we really kind of like dive in and see what this means for us. Like I said before, King Nebuchadnezzar stands as an example of every ruler or king who has ever felt threatened like they aren't in control anymore. So you might be thinking right now, Aaron, okay. Um, did I really come to youth group tonight just to hear about advice to political leaders or kings? Because that ain't ever going to be me, right? It's great to know what uh, kings and people in, in high-ranking officials should act like, but, but what does this really mean for us, for you as a high schooler? And so what's interesting about King Nebuchadnezzar is that every single one of us in fact, can see ourselves in King Nebuchadnezzar. And here's why. That our insecurities show when we either feel threatened or fearful. You see, something that I often say isn't that everyone is insecure, but every single person is desperately insecure. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is someone who is feeling the weight of someone might come and take away his power. And for him, he is the ruler of the world. He has power to tell people, hey, you're going to die because I said so. And so when, when he begins to feel threatened by the stream, he begins to lose it. His cards begin to show. He begins to act neurotically. He begins to act poorly and carelessly about life. And you know what's fascinating? Is there is a Nebuchadnezzar in every single American home. There is a Nebuchadnezzar at every single dinner table. With parents, for no reason, yelling at their children. I was, doing, I was trying to do a little bit of research. I couldn't find anything concrete. But I read this interesting blog about how so many American dads yell all the time and no one knows what for, why they're angry. Moms who yell at their children 
because they don't feel like they're in control of what their kids are doing or how their kids make them look. Kids, children, students, you. When we feel threatened or insecure by the person who is closest to us or by a sibling or a friend who looks better than us or who is achieving more accolades than us, who has more money than us, who has better looks than us. All of us fail at acting and responding in the right way when we feel threatened or fearful of others. And so here's what I like to say. Every single time when we respond in a negative way, when we feel threatened or fearful of others, what you are doing is you are missing the forest for the trees. Every time when you have a, a trial in life or you have a, a, an awkward situation or you have a hard day or you have a hard year, when we respond by sinning, when we respond by treating others poorly, I mean, I can't even imagine how often we talk about others in order to boast our own name. And when I say talk about others, I say it in a negative way. How often we desperately want us to feel like we are good at something or that we are important or special. But every single time we respond poorly, in a moment of crisis or we're fearful or we feel threatened, what we are doing is we are, in essence, doing this. We are functioning as if God doesn't exist in that moment. You see... The response for a Christian is this. is that we would trust God in whatever circumstance we are in. That God would be enough. That God would sustain us. That God would be our, our joy. That he would be our happiness. That he would be our strength of, of life. And what, what King Nebuchadnezzar here is picturing is he is picturing someone who when you take away the most important thing in life to him, what happens? He falls apart. So as I just think for a second of some of the songs that we sing in church or in youth group, as a Christian, supposedly, we're supposed to affirm that whether in the deepest tragedy or storm of life or trial, that we could sing the words wholeheartedly and with a heart of faith that it is well. That in the greatest joy of our life, in the greatest days of happiness and success, we are to sing the words, it is well. But how many of us on a day-to-day life can look at the the insecurities of our life, to look at the hardships, to look at the unfortunate things that just happen by being human, I can actually truly say it is well. You see, that is what makes a Christian distinctive in the world, is that when they feel threatened, when they feel fearful, when things just go horribly wrong, to trust the Lord is good, and to know that we have it far better than we deserve. So that is the first kingdom that we look at in Daniel chapter 2, a kingdom threatened. And so the next is this, a kingdom announced. And so 
what happens here is Daniel begins to unpack and interpret this dream. And so let me be honest. Like, I think there is, like, yay amount of, like, commentary writings in each commentary interpreting and describing what these four different types of metals or kingdoms are. And it's, it's, it's sad to me to see so many people miss, and you know, my, my point exactly, they miss the forest for the trees. Daniel chapter 2 is not designed for us to get stuck in the itty-bitty details of figuring out what all these different prophecies mean. But rather, it's something so much more than that. It's, it's almost to say, when you're learning your ABCs, that all you do is spend time learning about the A. And so if you look down at verse 37, um, Daniel from verses 37 to 48, he kind of explains the dream. So I'd like to read it for us. So look at verse 37. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. So, he just explained, you, King Nebuchadnezzar, you, kind of signifying Babylon, in that statue, you are represented in the gold. Okay? So there's four kingdoms explained. The first is you, Babylon, is the first one. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. So he's just just telling him, hey, guess what? Babylon ain't going to last forever. Because another kingdom is going to rise after you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you see the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. Verse 44, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall not break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. So here are these four kingdoms. Historically, we know this for a fact, that the, the four kingdoms represent, first, the gold is represented of Babylon. Okay, so we know that the Babylonians were an actual people and they're a group. So if you go to um, anywhere in the, the Middle East, you know, probably around the, the region of Turkey, where Babylon was. And so the next one is the, the, the Persians. So the next big world power that came in after the Babylonian Empire was the Persians. And after that came the Greeks. So that's the silver. So kind of like the Alexander the Great and the Hellenization of the whole world, if you've studied Western Civ at all. So if, does anyone know what language the New Testament is written in? Greek? And that was partly due to the Hellenization of the world, due to that Greek kingdom. And so the fourth, the iron, does anyone want to guess what it is? Which kingdom? Romans. Romans. Yes, Rome. And so here's what's really cool about that passage. 
after the Babylonians, after the Persians, after the Greeks, after Rome, after all these human kingdoms, this is what Daniel tells us, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. You see, human kingdoms crumble one after the other. He says that human kingdoms have the feet of clay. But you want to hear the really cool part? God's kingdom is eternal. It shall never be destroyed. Nor shall this kingdom be left to another people. Remind yourself again who is reading this. 2,500 years ago. Crazy to think about. 2,500 years ago, the common Jew of that day who was living in exile would be hearing that it is God who is sovereign to give Daniel the ability to interpret dreams. And it is the same God who will one day establish an everlasting kingdom that will make all human kingdoms look like a speck. See, here is, the, here is the issue that they are raising with. Does God even care about us? Will God punish the Babylonians? And here is what they hear. They hear encouragement because God's people who lack hope in the midst of persecution can have the, the confidence that God will one day come and make all things right. Think about our context. Think about this world in 2017 with all of the corruption, with sex trafficking, with divorce, with political injustice, with disease. Here's the point Daniel 2 is making for us. Here's the main point. God will replace all human wrongs with his everlasting kingdom. You see, when, when, I, when we use the word kingdom, I also like to use the word dominion. And we're not just talking about a government. We're talking about everything that wars against God's original creation. Stillborn babies. STDs. Clean drinking water. Murder. Lying, greed, gossip. Because I, I, don't, I don't know what your life is like. I really don't, day to day. I know some of you, and, but you know, life can be really great for some of you. But I think if we really took the time to stop and look around, even in our community, even in our city, our state, our nation, and even if we looked further than that in the world, I hate to burst your bubble, we don't live in a world that is always peachy. We live in a world with a lot of injustice and a lot of suffering and a lot of hurt. 160,000 Christians are murdered each year. And here's what Daniel 2 is saying 2,500 years ago. That one day, God will replace all human wrongs with his everlasting kingdom. And so this is what they would have heard back then. The Babylonian kingdom that you are living in will not last. It will be replaced by another kingdom and another kingdom and a kingdom after that until God's kingdom comes.
And so what's fascinating, if you look at verse 46, then then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. You see what was happening again is another picture of what we saw last week, that God continued to bless Daniel and his friends as God faithfully guided his people. But you know what's really cool about living post-Old Testament? Is we have the whole Bible. We have the, the entire word of God for us. And so the last kingdom, I mentioned there's three kingdoms, is what I like to call a kingdom revealed. And so this is what I, I refer to as the gospel kingdom. So, this book, Daniel, was written approximately 500 to 550 years before Jesus came. So we can say 500 years after Daniel gave this interpretation to King Nebuchadnezzar, Jesus came to earth. So the kingdoms of Babylon, the kingdoms of Persia, the kingdom of Greece are long gone. And Rome now rules the world. And so if you look to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 1, the the angel Gabriel announces Jesus' birth to Mary, saying about Jesus, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So 30 years after that, when Jesus begins his own public ministry, and he goes all around Judea, talking about the kingdom of God, he says the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. And so Jesus, in his birth and in his life and his ministry, what happens is this new kingdom, which Daniel talks about, God will establish a kingdom forever, is now being ushering in. It is now the time for human kingdoms to take a back seat. And now God's kingdom, the kingdom in which shall never be destroyed or be left to another people, is finally here. But here's the thing. The kingdom of God did not fully come during Jesus' lifetime. Because Rome was still in power. And in fact, when when Jesus was crucified on the cross, it looked like the kingdom of God actually failed. But leave it to God to take calamity and ruin and to turn it into his will. Jesus raises from the dead with power and life to give. And his disciples, right before Jesus ascends to heaven, his disciples ask him this one really important question. Lord, is now the time you will restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're still waiting for this military, geographical kingdom to destroy everyone else. And so, this is the tension that we live in as Christians. This is the tension of the already but not yet. The good news is this. The kingdom of God has first come with Jesus. In his first coming, we know that Jesus came to offer forgiveness of sins. To offer new life to any of those who would put their trust in him. But here is the Christian's great hope. That when Jesus comes back, he will replace all earthly kingdoms and fill the whole earth. 
And so even if we look at Daniel chapter 2 within the in the the dream, he mentions a stone will come and knock down these kingdoms and it will fill the whole earth. Jesus, the song we just sang, the cornerstone, who will build his church and fill up the earth with his heavenly kingdom, not a kingdom that can be seen by geographical borders. So here's the point of, of of Daniel chapter 2. With all of that being said, whatever circumstances we have, whatever struggles or problems that we have, let us not miss the forest for the trees. Let us not, in my day-to-day, when I'm having a rough time and I'm so down, I'm negative, forget the hope that Jesus is going to come back and he's going to fully establish his kingdom. And by doing so, God's kingdom of peace and justice gives us hope that it's on its way. You see, high schoolers, if we do not have a good understanding of where we are headed in life, of what life is actually about, if we forget that Jesus has promised that he has come back, that he himself offers us good hope. We will always be people who look at the trees instead of looking at the forest. We will be people who are stuck in today and who will miss the big picture. And so let me, be, let me end by an encouragement that Jesus himself gives us in the Gospel of Luke. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. See, 2,500 years ago, Daniel, through this evil king, Nebuchadnezzar, talked about an eternal heavenly kingdom that can be ours through our faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can have hope in your kingdom. Lord, so many times we are so self-interested, self-absorbed, and focused on ourselves, Lord, that we forget that we are part of a kingdom that is far bigger than our day-to-day circumstances. So, Lord, I ask you that you would give our hearts faith that when things go wrong in life, when unfortunate things or when calamity strikes, that we would not respond in a way of fear or failure, but we would respond by trusting in you, by having hope that, Jesus, you will come and you will make all things right. You will take care of every evil deed and action. Jesus, thank you that we can have hope that your kingdom is the only kingdom that will last and that for all of eternity, you will be our king. So, Lord, I ask that we would be kingdom people. We'd be people who bow the knee to Jesus. We'd be people who who see the true king and seek to love him, adore him, and obey him. God, in, in our insecurities and in our faults, help us to know that you are enough, that the gospel is what fuels our hearts with the joy and the love and the accomplishment that we so desperately need. So Lord, I pray that these, uh, these words would glorify you, that we would make much of your name, that we would make much of your kingdom, not our own personal kingdoms. Jesus, we ask you to be 
the chief cornerstone of our life and of this group and of our church. And we ask this all in your precious name. Amen.